You got nine live gun towers. Like I seen, I, when I was there, I seen a guy, they were in a fist fight, no weapons. And the gun tower, they, they sounded the alarm. They sound the alarm. You know, everybody get on the ground and they'll fire like one warning shot in the air. And they fired that warning shot and they didn't stop fighting it. And they shot the guy. What's good in the hood, baby? What's up, man? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing real good. Interesting day. Interesting last couple days. I've been kicking it with a with an ex-con, everybody. He's actually a really great guy. Do you like to be called John or Jack? I've been calling you Jay. Government name's John Sanders. Government J name is John Sanders, and uh, he's got a really interesting story about prison, why he went to prison. It, it's just a whole thing. So anyways, thanks for coming, and thanks for doing this. I wanted to kind of kick things off a little bit with a background of childhood like, was your upbringing, I mean, I'm basing this off what I know about you now, like, was your upbringing, how, how was it? Was it good? Was it bad? Um, it, it just depends how you look at it. I, w I grew up in a small area, probably about 25,000 people. Had the best uh, dad in the world, probably not the best parent, you know, pr pretty open to, th I was probably exposed to things that I shouldn't have been, probably at an early age. Of course, he, he graduated high school in 1976. So, you know, it, it, weed was really starting to come to us, like, epitone and cocaine. So my dad went from being, like, a star football player. He had, like, people would come watch him. Um, to started smoking weed, getting into that whole social network. And eventually that led to, after he had my sister and me, my sisters, I have an older sister, mm -hmm. and me, he got arrested for trafficking marijuana like they would we lived in a rural area so they would grow and manufacture you know marijuana in large quantities so in 1984 so i was two years old he was arrested on a trafficking conspiracy went to prison wasn't a real long time approximately two years come out and did really really good like had like a 10-year gap no trouble i don't really know the particulars why he got back to doing what he did but the same thing, approximately 10 years later, 94, caught another big weed distribution charge, ended up in prison for like 36 months. So, but he was like the best father ever. Like I can do anything, you know, I can weld, I can build things. Um, he taught me everything that I know today to be able to build a successful business. But just far as the parenting skills of exposure to certain things, you know, kind of could have been in a better position. Um, what kind of influence do you think that had on you and, you know, in your life when you started getting into, you know, selling drugs? Like, you seem to really look up to him. You seem to still really love the, you love your father, right? You're correct. Which is awesome. But like you said, he, you, it's, it was almost like you were too much like your father yeah, in a I mean, lot of ways, easy. right? I mean, once you see it, like somebody trafficking, you know, on, on a decent scale of drugs, you know, the money's easy, the mom's got a new car, you got whatever shoes you want, clothes. So then when you go from that to him getting incarcerated, you see it like the struggle and the poverty because you got a single mother raising two children at that point without the same financing. So that becomes hard. And you, you get to see what it's like both sides to have money and not. So, of course, I, I like to have money. It's a lot easier 
you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about anything. I've seen the strain it put on my my mother, his absence. And, you know, so once I got a little older and started getting into selling drugs and stuff, it made it real easy because I had all the connections. Like, my dad's solid, reputation solid. But at that point, once I had gotten involved in it, you know, he was against it. And, you know, it's it's hard. You know, you can tell somebody something, but what you do is usually what they follow. Of course. And, you know, and I can remember having a conversation with him. I had went from selling weed, and then the whole methamphetamine epidemic started hitting our area around. How old were you when you started selling weed? Uh, probably about 15, you know. And that's, like, the first drugs you were selling? Yeah, for sure. All right, so, like, what was the thing that enticed you to sell drugs? Like, you start from there. Tell me, like, what was the first time you ever... You know, sold the sold the bag of some shitty weed to somebody or something. I would have been 14, cause it was when my dad was doing his second term, and so my mom had caught me with some weed, and she said, so she go, you know, we go to visit my dad, and he he she tells on me, and uh, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he's involved in this stuff, you know, yada yada yada. You need to talk to your son, blah blah blah, and so he's telling, you know, eventually he sees I'm not gonna stop doing it, so. He kind of tells my mother, he's like, look, you know, I'd rather even deal with my people as opposed to dealing with somebody else and getting hurt. Or Yeah, I understand. Plus, his, his connections were a little better anyway, so it worked out great for me. Right. That's crazy. So that's how that all kicked off. So that's how it started. So my dad, once he got out on that prison term, he, he's never done nothing since, as, you know, as far as traffic, weed or anything he still smokes. We're, we're, it's real controversial because I'm like, why are you doing that? You know, like, it's ruined your life. It tore our family apart. But we, we agree to disagree on that issue. Right. We also agree to disagree on the weed issue. Yeah, you like to smoke weed and I don't. But yeah. it's great. It's, it's all right. It's a balancing friendship. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. I respect that your, your opinion. Yeah. You're wrong, but, you know, I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, Roger. <laughs> But so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of revert back to the story. So I was selling the weed and we were still making money on weed. And I'm an opportunist. Like when I see something, you know, there's a need for something. I, I want to be able to be the vendor for it. And, and, you know, it's the same way when I was selling drugs. So I seen there was a big need for methamphetamine. It was a small area and there was like no real big distributor. So at first I started. How did that come to your attention? How did I? Well, I mean, the social network I'm in. And I'm seeing the money in it, and like if you if you have to sell a hundred pounds of weed, it's a pretty good size to commute, you know, to take somewhere. I didn't really do it by the kilo; I did it by the pounds. But the pounds, you know, a pound of methamphetamine is, you know, this big. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not that. <laughs> no, big. I know. Yeah, it's worth a lot of money, but it's not that big. So just a little pound, just like that. Size really matters. What's that was? A, what was that worth at the time? At the time, I saw I didn't like traffic it out to <clears throat> multiple people. Mm-hmm. I dealt with two people. One person initially it ended up becoming two. That's where I messed up, but should have stuck with the one person. Were you cooking it, or you were just buying it? Yeah, that's it? what it led into. First, I was, you, you kind of you trying to steal my show here. Yeah, a little but, bit. Sorry. Okay. So I was buying it at first, and then um, it was brought to my attention, like, how to manufacture it. So, like, locally, people were making, like, small quantities, and I'm like, I'm just not getting involved in that shit for a small quantity. So I started making some contacts and figuring out where I could get, like, mass quantities of the chemicals. So at the time, you could either, you know, use lithium-ion, government-controlled sodium, pseudoephedrine hydrochloride. That was the three main th things you needed 
And, you know, we're using like a reduction met method. You use a catalyst and electrode, reduce the oxygen molecule, out of pseudoephedrine, and then you get methamphetamine. Okay. So I made the connections. We're getting plenty of the chemicals in. We were we would take the all the way from like Canadian border up through northern Wisconsin. It's real country. So we'd set up a lab there, manufacture you know several pounds. We'd vacuum seal it, you know, put it inside the doors, and then we would traffic it back towards Kentucky. Right. And Kentucky is like I feel like those rural areas really hit it off with the meth. Oh man. Yeah, they they crush it, huh? It was amazing. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, uh, so, but you're selling in quantity. You're not like, no one's coming over for you for a little bit of meth. No, I think where I got the most excitement out of it, because I was in the social network, but nobody really knew what I was doing. I would leave once a month, pick up the chemicals, manufacture the drug, bring it back. How were you bringing them back? In vehicles, vacuum sealed, inside door panels, you know, different spots. Right, to hide right, right. Yes. But I would bring it back, and then I dealt with one person in particular at first, become two. And, you know, we would go out to these social gatherings. And I never seen the need to, like, cut it, you know. Right. I wanted, like, a pure drug. So we would be out at these parties and everything, and people would be like, oh, I don't know. Somebody's brought this into town, and it's, like, so pure. Have you seen it? And I would get a chuckle out of it because, you know, we're the ones bringing it in, but nobody really knew. So that was kind of probably where I got, like, the biggest excitement out of it is nobody knew what was going on. I'm getting everybody high. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. the whole uh, – the city's high. Yeah. That's crazy. Do you uh, look back at that now and, like, do you feel bad about that at all? Oh, absolutely. So when I was 20 years old, you know, when people start getting into the harder drugs and everything, it's like just a it, – it's a fun. We're, we're traveling, going wherever we want, doing whatever we're doing. But, like, none of us have kids. We don't really see like the degenerative effects that a drug addict, you know, leads into. So, you know, like it was like it's just all fun, money. We're having a great time, but then post incarceration, once I got locked up, I really learned like how bad this is destructing people's lives. Not only from inside prison, but my mother had become addicted to methamphetamine. So now I have two younger siblings. You know, they're 18 years younger than me they are getting neglected and then my dad ends up having to raise two children by himself and you know this is just a big eye opener so i seen it in prison like people would they would want drugs inside prison of course there's all kind of drugs inside prison and you you know you're next to somebody on the phone in prison there's three four or five phones you know you know some of these people and you hear them on the phone talking to their family and they're like Oh, mom, I need money for this legal work. And you're looking at him like, you ain't even got no appeal going. Mm -hmm. I know that's a lie, you know. And they just get addicted to drugs and just do real snaky things. And, you know, like, it's made me start thinking, like, man, I was I was really facilitating all this shit. Right. You know, just destroying lives. And then my mother lost uh, custody of my two youngest siblings. You know, that that was like a home run to me there. I was like, whoa. You wow. Know, how many people did I do that to? Right. Yeah, that's got to yeah feel some type of way so you're trafficking meth you're making meth you're distributing it you're crossing state lines with it what happened you got caught it was all fun until the cops showed up i'm not going to mention no names but a, a close friend of mine that we were 50 50 partnership on this we did everything together and he was two years older than me and we just were real good friends grew up rode motorcycles together we grew up on the lake in kentucky so that's all we did is stay outside so we get out there we're doing all this together 
we actually get, I guess I'll go through the process of how we got caught because nobody really told on me that really got them onto us. So at this warehouse, this is near the border of Canada, that is the guy I hooked up with. So he was inside, we would go to him and he, he would make arrangements. We were, weren't stealing it out of there because I didn't want to raise no red flags when they do inventory. Right. And it was a distribution spot. So we'd pay for it, and, but there's loss prevention agent inside that distribution center, and they started noticing just us making communication with him and we don't work there. So October, I think it was October 14th of 2002, the guy had seen it and he knew something was wrong because he's like, well, you know, they shouldn't be here picking up this. So he calls the DEA immediately. So I got lucky. Uh, you know, I, I got out of there. They missed me, but I didn't know they were on to it. Yeah, of course. So November comes, which it was November 22nd of 2002. Like the worst numbers in my life are 11 and 22 because I got uh, arrested in uh, November 22nd. I got 22 years. I was sentenced when I was 22 years old, and I was supposed to get out in 2022. Oh, wow. So Wow. And that's the controlling numbers in numerology. So for whatever reason, I'm not sure why all that happened. So you get busted, but, like, so where were you when you, you know, when this kind of went down where you're getting arrested? Okay. The actual arrest spot was Dane County, Wisconsin, which is the capital of Wisconsin, Madison. So I'm coming out. And the truck's already loaded, you know, everything's in the truck. And the guy that's with me, um, he's inside the truck. He didn't go inside. So as I'm walking out, I, I see this guy, and he's like in a Cutlass, not the older Cutlass, like the newer model. Yeah. One. We make eye contact as I'm walking by him. And when he looks at me, I could just, it just, it was like a bad energy. And I'm like, man, that's got to be a, a fit. Yeah, you never right? fucking knew it. Yeah. Uh, so I get in the vehicle and. What do you have on you? Oh, a truckload of pseudoephedrine hydrochloride and government-controlled <laughs> sodium. Like, literally a truckload. So I'm like, fuck, I know I'm in trouble. You know, and I have, like, I think I have $42,000 cash in the truck. Oh, that's good. Yeah, perfect. I mean, it just makes a good recipe for a conviction. And so long story short, I see him. So I get in the truck, and I don't immediately pull off. I tell Alex, I said, that's got to be, like, a DEAJ or a fed or something it, it's something i can just tell so he's telling me no you're just tripping come on like how's it going to be that i'm like i'm telling you it is so i put the truck in gear and i'll remember this like for the rest of my life like just how it happened i put the truck in gear and i pull off and he don't follow me and i'm like maybe maybe i am getting paranoid or something yeah. like and i had like just nervous still when i was doing this because i've done it my whole life something illegal and I'm like, man, maybe maybe it's time for me to get out of this. I'm I'm getting shaky or something. So he just stays in the parking lot, and I drive like a quarter mile. I'm watching him, and I thought, maybe it's not the, the cops. And as soon as I pull out on the Washington Exchange, I see another unmarked, but there's a separating median, so he can't get behind. He can't get turned around. Mm -hmm. And when I seen him, I knew it. Like, I know, here they're coming, you know. Hey, you're fucked. And I, so the adrenaline got to rushing him in. He's telling me. I'm, I'm overreacting, but I know what it is. You yeah. Know? I know they're about to pull me over or try to. So I took off. Oh, I'm okay. out of there. So, but we're, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, UW Madison, like kind of how the logistics of it are. No, it's, no. it's real downtown, small one way roads. And long story short, I get away from that officer. He couldn't, he couldn't get on the exchange fast as me. I get on it, get away, and I pull in a residential neighborhood. 
So I'm like, let's just let's just get the fuck out. I got the money. We'll go hit the airport, get out of there. I'll report it stolen. But you know, in in your mind, you, as a, as a criminal, you're trying to you're trying to figure this out real fast. But I'm already on camera at the distribution. Yeah, they've spot. done had you done. Yeah, yeah. They've, done, they've done got me. Like, yeah, I'm stuck. Doesn't even matter. So. I'm thinking this a little bit in my head, like I can't stop. I at least got to get this out of the truck, you know. So I'm driving around and I pull out, and they've already got an APB on me, you know. And I'm young, and I got a Bahama metallic paint job on this truck, and like it flip flops, and it's got 20 inch rims, like 20 inch rims then were something, you know, but not now. But I never expected this to happen, and so I pull out there, and it's a marked car. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, you he's, he's like six cars behind me. So I'm watching in the mirror like, what's he doing? You know, I'm trying to avoid him being able to get behind me. So he ends up making his way to me and gets behind me, pulls me over. So I pull in the alley, and I tell my co-defendant, I was like, man, I'm about to back into this motherfucker, and I'm going to smash his car, and I'm going to take off. Mm-hmm. And he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. You're overreacting. You don't need to know if they know what's in the vehicle or anything yet. Right. I'm like, they fucking know, dude. Yeah, dude, you I know. I mean, what are you thinking? We're, we're having this serious conversation like this. And I'm like, they know. They've got to know. There was a, that, that was a fucking cop at the distribution center. That was a cop tried to get behind us, and now we're pulled over. So I'm sitting there, and he's like, oh, that'll just get us in way more trouble. So <coughs> under the Free Sale and Trade Act, when I was doing this, you could buy, sell, trade. You could do whatever. It wasn't governed by the, D, the like FDA or DEA at this point. The only way they could, they, they had to prove culpable knowledge that you were doing this. So we knew all this before getting involved in this. Right. And we had rehearsed the stories. Like, if anything happened, because I would never carry, like, multiple, chem, you know, too many of, of the same thing. Like, the, you need, like, three precursors for a conviction. So I wouldn't carry them all together. And so we get out. They do. No, let me back up a little bit. So when the officer gets there, the DA that I first seen, he's in this green cutlass. He pulls up, you know, he's a detective with a leather jacket and his badge. And he goes, they've already taken my ID when I got pulled over. Yeah. So he didn't even have a clue who I was. But he's like, oh, it's so great to meet you finally, Mr. Sanders. Oh, wow, you're like, and I'm fuck. like, so I don't know what's happened at that point. I thought, oh, somebody's done told, you know, like, yeah. he, he's so great to meet you finally. So he asked me, to, you know, so what's going on here? Can I search the vehicle? And I was like, no, you can't. If you don't have probable cause, I'm not giving you any issues to search the vehicle. So we sat there for like three hours in the back of a police car. But they're trying to get a warrant to search the vehicle. Of course, yeah. So they end up getting. What they pull you over for? Huh? They cite why they pulled you over. Uh, well, that was a big thing, and you know that that goes into my appeals process. But in this, in the state of Wisconsin, if they pull you over. In, they can search your vehicle, what they call incident to a criminal arrest, but they pulled me over, they said, for not wearing a seat buckle, which is a civil forfeiture. You know, I didn't know all this till I was fighting it from prison right. trying to beat my case. We, we get in there, we're going through the proceedings, they let my co-defendant bond out. So what does he do? He goes right to where we have a lab set up in DeKalb, Illinois. So once he gets there, they're, they're tracking on him the whole time. So he loads this stuff up in his vehicle and heads back towards Kentucky. They pull him over, the feds do. He gets arrested, and they're like, no, you're going to cooperate with us, sir. We're going to give you 80 years. Wow. All right. So I don't know all this (coughs) at first. You know, he's bonded out, and we've been talking. And then he gets arrested for a short period of time, and then they let him back out. So I I don't really know, but then he started quit taking my phone call, and I knew something was wrong then. And at that point, it's just a state case. And like Did you have suspicions? 
not at first because I knew I had like rock solid. They can't do nothing to us unless somebody tells. So I'm thinking in my mind, he don't want to subject himself to be giving them evidence as to what we were doing, you know, because it's going to, you know, implement or. But you at that point had no idea that he was facing. No, I didn't know he had got caught with this other shit, you know, or so my attorney comes to me and he's a state attorney and he's th- this is like this is january or february and he's like they want to give you five years in the state truth and sentencing and in wisconsin they had truth and sentencing meaning that if you took five years you do five years to the day no parole nothing nothing so i'm like hell no i'm not taking you know i'm 20 years old like i just got off the streets having a lot of fun i'm, <coughs> like, I'm not signing up for five years <laughs> So he's like, we'll go to trial, you know. I, you know, I think you can win. He don't know he, my co-defendant is cooperating at this point. So about, I don't know, two weeks go by, and he comes back to visit me. He said, we got a whole nother issue. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You just two weeks ago you told me you think you can beat this. Yeah. Now I know I'm, you know, it's it's going to be a battle to try to win a case. So I have no clue about the federal. Uh, proceedings whatsoever I'm, I'm totally ignorant to it so my attorney that I had then he didn't practice federal law so I had to waste more money hire a federal attorney so I go through one and all he wants to do is me to cooperate me to cooperate me to cooperate right and I'm like I'm not cooperating you know it's just not me I, I, I'm not a snitch I got myself into this and now you got to figure out how to get me out right that's your job and so I end up firing him and in the federal system it's not as easy as just firing your attorney because you know the court wants like a timely proceeding on everything and you got to have like grounds to fire your attorney so we're here we are and we're in front of this this judge in madison wisconsin and i'm like i I can't deal with him you know all he wants me to do is cooperate with the government you know i haven't done nothing you know i'm I'm definitely claiming innocent at that point yeah of course you pled not guilty off the rip anyways just like everybody else does I tell him, like, I, I, can't, I can't deal with him. All he's wanting me to do is cooperate with the DEA, and I don't know anything. Like, so she ends up, she, they, they, they recuse him from my case, and I get another attorney. So this guy comes in, and uh, I, I shout out to him for real. John Sperlinski was his name. And he, he, he was always honest. He lost the trial, but he, he didn't have a winning case. But he did everything he could. He did everything he said he would. And uh, he comes in there and he tells me, he says, you know, you're looking at 20 and everything in the feds is like months. You know, they don't tell you years. It's 262 months or this. So I said, what, 20 months? Like, that ain't shit. Mm -hmm. You know, I've already been in here for like eight or nine. No big deal. And he's like, no, you're looking at like 20 years. That's the bottom end. Damn. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no. He says, you got two options. And what were the exact charges at that point? At that time, it's possession of precursors with intent to manufacture methamphetamine, conspiracy to manufacture. Okay. And do they put a weight on that or a quantity on that? Yeah, I had the federal guideline scale maxed out. It goes from level 1 to 38. So the quantity I had put me at a level 38. So that's what subjected me to so much time. And federal sentencing guidelines, unless you cooperate, they're mandatory. The judge doesn't have no leniency as far as if she wants to give you less or more. She has to follow strictly within those guidelines. Right. So it's set up kind of like a spreadsheet. And you got 1 through 38. Actually, 41. But Yeah, but I love how there's an incentive to, like, say, fuck my rights. Does that make, make sense? As far as, like, you're going to do... So you're telling me... If you don't cooperate, 
they're not going to say, all right, we'll give you 10 years instead of 20. Oh, it's, it's worse than that because if you exercise your right to trial, they automatically punish you for that. It's you're gonna get the maximum sentence. That's so fucked. Yeah, it's it's really bad, and that's like that's like a right for our country. You should be able to you know face your accused. Yeah. And so that proceeded, and I told him, you know, it, they starts getting into the phases of negotiation, and he's like, you know, you, you, there's no possible way to get you under 20 years. That's the best plea bargain we can get is 20. The maximum sentence they're gonna be able to give you is 30. And I just looked at him and I was like, there's no way in fuck I'm signing up for 20 years. We got we to gotta pull 12 jurors. Yeah, no doubt. No, how are you, you going to just sit there and just say, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah. Nope, sounds good. Yeah, I Deal. just can't do it because you know you're doing it then. Yeah, that's crazy. And so, so once we get to that phase, and I just, I just told him, John, I, I know you got a losing case. This is through a prison visit. You know, he'd come see me. And I, I said, I know you got a, a losing case, but I, I just can't see myself as a man signing a document right here and giving them 20 years of my life yeah i just can't do it so you do what you got to do and i'll handle all the consequences and and he did he fought hard it's an unfair it was an unfair trial i'm not here to claim him i was innocent in any way because i was guilty but like when we were in our when we were in our trial the jury come back four hours after their deliberations three-day trial and when they come back into it they said we want to hear the testimony of bleep 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 against John Sanders because there was a lot of disparities in his testimony as far as, you know, the intent and what was going on. And Who requested that, the prosecution? No, the actual jury oh, requested. Oh, the jury requested, okay. And the judge sent him back into deliberations and said, this has been a three-day trial. You shouldn't even, you shouldn't need any transcripts to review. You should be able to recollect it. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Wow, really? You know, like, that was my last hope going out the window, you know? Yeah, like, because wow. there's nothing they could... To try to, you know, they're trying to pull a hole in the story, and with that, you know, without it, where they can really do it, it, it really, it really hurts me. So you go to trial and you lose. Worst moment of my life. Found guilty. The jury, the jury actually reads the verdict in a federal trial, and they read, you know, us the jury, we find Mr. Sanders guilty on is four counts. So find me guilty on these four counts, and. Uh, you know, nothing had really affected me to that point. And, you know, and you have to stand up. I thought I was going to pass out waiting on the verdict. Cause I believe that. It's like D-Day. Yeah. It's go home or you're fucked. Right. You know? And I'm surprised your sweet southern accent didn't have a little impression on the judge. Well, that was the thing. They, did, they didn't want <laughs> me to get on on to testify for myself. Really? Yeah, this is, this is in the jury because then they can start interrogate me about the whole situation where if he just testifies against me against me we can try to discredit his story well that's got to really suck to have your buddies that like were like oh i won't snitch on you snitching on you oh they'll tell yeah they'll saying tell. my like I, I told you this the other day when i was talking to you i was like my stepdad used to tell me everybody just once they get in there they're fucking singing you know yeah, it's it's fun. It's really it. funny that aspect of it because on my federal case, I only had one co-defendant because I only took one person with me. I, you know, he was the only person I did that part of the business with. Once he caught that case, when he went back to Kentucky, they started a whole nother case <coughs> with organized crime, and it had two conspiracy to commit murders in it, and like sixteen or eighteen drug trafficking charges. Well, I got implemented in all that, and so they draw out like this pyramid. 
And like I'm at the top, and I'm like, how the fuck am I? I'm at the top of all these people. I don't even know them. Yeah. But they're saying because I was distributing it. Yeah, you had no idea who it was going people. through at that point. Yeah. So long story short, that we we were set up for another trial. L fucking Sanders over here. No, it was nothing like that. But we're set up for another trial in that case, and I come from the feds. This is kind of funny part of the story too. So I come from the feds. Everybody knows me in my town. And I know people that are in the county jail just doing county time. So I'm in there, and I'm doing 22 years in the feds. And I'm like, fuck, I'm not trying to do all this time. Of course. So I start looking at the cell and how it's designed and everything. And, like, they have prison tables, and they're, like, flat metal tables with two braces bolted to the wall. So I'm looking, like, how can I get this off? Because they got the drop ceiling. So I think if I get up in there, I can, I can chisel a hole big enough to get out of this jail with it. And um, so I, I end up tearing this bar off this table. This is in 2006, four years after my federal conviction. So I tear this bar off this table, and I start. I, I get the. I get somebody to bring me in a security star bit, so you could take the panel off in the ceiling. That's hilarious. And so I get up there. I'm chunking, trying to get out of here, just a little bit at a time. Well, in the process of doing so, uh, a fight ensues in the cell. And I guess, you know, we didn't clean up good enough. And there was a little bit of, like, concrete dust along the wall. So I see him go in the cell, and I'm like, oh, shit. He starts looking around. And I'm like, this ain't good. And uh, they get to looking around. They clear the whole cell out. It's like 11 people in there. I'm like, okay, my plan to escape. It's it's about to go south here. Yeah. And I never go back to that cell because I end up in solitary confinement after that. And uh, For how long? Well, they, they had, you know, that you have, like, you go to an adjudication in the county jail there, and they, they give me 360 days in solitary confinement. Now, at the same time, I'm fighting this case, and I'm doing 22 years in federal, and then I got this other case they're trying to slam me on. So I just tell my attorney down there, I was like, look, I can't, I'm not plea bargain to any of this shit. I'm going to trial on everything. Yeah, might as well. I mean, I'm already fucked. Yeah, and I had fucked that, anyways. I had that mentality, like, I'm, you know, I was just on a downward spiral with the judicial system. It's like lose, lose. So they really don't want to go to trial. We, we get to that point, and they're trying to say, well, you know, take 20 years and run it consecutive. So now I'm doing 20 in the feds and 20 in the state when get I get done. Get the fuck out of here. I'm like, fuck, no, we're going to trial. You just suit them up. You know? Yeah. I, I started feeling the vibe. They really don't want to go to trial. My attorney's telling me, look, if I can get them to give you 10 years ran concurrent for all these charges— and I'm like, I'm not, I'm the biggest part of it for me is I wasn't fucking guilty of some of these charges. They got me tied in with these other people. Right, right, like right. Like I really, I, I really wasn't. And it was like, it was an ego thing. Like I'm not guilty of this. You right. Know, I'm actually innocent. So my attorney come up there and they actually even brought my father in. Cause I'm like, I'm not pleading guilty of that shit. I don't care if it's 10 years concurrent or not. I didn't do it. And you know, my dad, my father come in there and he's like, look. If you, you know, you're not getting a day extra in prison for any of these charges. They're running it concurrent with time served. Like, you need to take this plea bargain because if you do go to trial and you lose, like, you're looking at 50 years now. Yeah, you're out of your fucking mind. Yeah, it's 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 over, game over, you know. So I was like, do you really think that's a good idea? You know, I didn't do this shit. And he's like, it, sometimes in this situation it really doesn't matter. Yeah, that <laughs> sucks because they do. They put you in a really... I, and I also feel like once you're in the system, it's meant to keep you in it. It's not really meant to help rehabilitate, right? Like, I mean, uh, not at all, right? Like, like I, I don't, I don't see how that like is. I don't see how putting people in a cage is like. All right, now they're gonna be better when they come out. 
It, it, like, isn't that, what the, isn't that what the goal is? I don't understand. It, it can be like that. I think the most important part for people to understand, in, in prison, a, a person is going to make the time, at, you know, either work for them or work against them. But it's it's the obstacles that you face once you're released that really determine success nor failure. But, no, it's not designed to uh, help you in any way. Yeah, that's for sure. For sure. That's for sure. Um, I have no, know a couple people that have been to jail. And- <laughs> I've had the pleasure of interviewing some people that have been to prison and not so many as have been as fortunate as you. Um, why don't you tell me, um, like one of your crazier jail story or prison stories? Um, I, I'll kind of walk you through the whole slideshow of it. Yeah. Give me start that. to finish. I like okay. It. Go for it. So I, I had a lot better uh, personality and I was more of a comical guy. I just care for it and have a whole lot of stress in my life until all this occurred. But uh, I get to prison. I've lost the trial. You know, I'm young, and you're kind of ignorant when you're young. You're like, okay, I got 22 years, but it's like, okay, let's go see what this is about. So we go from Dane County, that's where I went to trial at, to MCC Chicago, and it's like a skyscraper jail. You know, it's three different buildings. They're built like a triangle. And uh, we go there for transfer, and they come pick us up on the first federal bus. This is the first time that a federal bus has come and picked me up. It's real early in the morning, like 3 in the morning. So we go to O'Hara, the airport there. And I don't know my federal number at this time. I'm just federally convicted. I, I haven't had any documentation with it or anything. So, like, how it kind of, I could paint a picture for you of how it works. So you pull up on these buses, and you have, like, federal prison in Wisconsin. You have one in MCC Chicago. And any surrounding federal prisons will meet at that airport on these buses. They're like, you know, a city bus. And what they do when you pull up, all the guards will get out and there'll be U.S. Marshals come like in black Suburbans, you know, they line up and they create a perimeter and they're all armed with AR-15s. And then at that point, they'll start getting all their itineraries of who's on the plane, who's going where. And you'll have like a bus here. They're going to the federal prison in Wisconsin. This one's going over here. This one's going to southern Illinois. So they'll start calling your name, you'll walk off the plane, you'll get up, and of course you're handcuffed and shackled now. you got a belly chain to your cuffs and then shackles on your feet. So uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, getting up out of a plane seat with that shit on, plus walking down a flight of stairs. Right. you're not at a flight gate at that point. So you get down there, it's fucking freezing cold. It was in the winter when I went, like there's snow on the ground, and I was out there for like two fucking hours for them figuring out, you know, 200 inmates coming off the plane, where they're going and everything. Yeah. And, and, and mind you, they've woke you up like at midnight, took you to receiving and discharge to, you know, start all this process. So you get on the bus to where you're going. Or I went from a bus to a plane, flew from Chicago to Oklahoma City. That's the transfer center. And it's huge. It's like 10 stories. You never touch the ground. You pull right up to a flight gate. You go in. It's like a long corridor. So the first thing you'll do is you'll go in these staging, uh, like, rooms, and you'll fill out your name and do you got any medical issues, all this shit, you know, that they'll take the cuffs off you at that point. So you're in a room with, like, 200 inmates you don't know, nothing. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you know, like, what any of them are there for, but... No, they, they, they don't really, like, classify you at that point. It's just, like, they're trying to get you to wherever you're going. Right. So it's everybody. There's everybody from six months to six life sentences in these... these they're called bullpens. Is that point where things maybe get a little bit more real for you as far as like 
when things get moving to like where you're going to be maybe housed for any sort of extended period uh, of time now? So the next process there, so you go to Oklahoma City, it's like a all day affair getting processed in, and then they'll send you to a cell block. So you know once you get to Oklahoma City, it's usually like one to 25 days you could be there. It just whenever that next plane comes in to head it out to your destination, there was when I was in the federal system, there was 114 prisons. So you, that being said, there's a lot of destinations, and there's like four planes for the feds that fly, you know, fly dedicated every day. <coughs> so you're waiting on that. So you know, there it's kind of like the county jail. There's nothing much to do. You can make phone calls. They have a TV room, but it, basically there's not a whole lot to do there and you know this was all new to me i'd come from a county jail now i'm in the transfer center so you know you're talking to guys you're eating every day at a table with somebody and you know you're asking questions and they're like man this is nothing once you get out to the yard you know you'd be able to play basketball work out you know there's classes you can take this that and the other and so i was like okay you know, it sounds a little better so my my next story is when they pick me up from oklahoma to go to Memphis, Tennessee. That's going to be my first destination. And I'm like, this is so great. You know, you're getting out. I've already been in the county at that time at, for two years in Wisconsin. Right. And so they, they picked me up pretty quick. I think it was within about a week. So, of course, you wake up at midnight. You go sit there all day, wait on the plane to get there, load it up, fly to Memphis. And once you get to Memphis, you know, you get off. There's all the correctional officers from there. Forest City, there's a few different institutions that fly into Memphis. So you get off. So we get to Memphis, get in the bullpen, and then you go through what they call R&D, and that's receiving discharge. So you come in there, you're in another little bullpen. They're, they're pretty friendly there. It's probably the best prison I've ever been to. It's like a college with a fence around it, kind of. Really? Yeah. I mean, What it, an interesting way to describe it. I mean, it really is, except there's no women. That's yeah. It's, it's a all-male college. So I get there, and... Uh, we finally, you get what they call a bed roll. It's like, a, you know, it's temporary for like your washcloth towel to a small little toothpaste, this and that, so you can get to the store and buy everything you need. So when the, I'll, I'll never really forget that. It's a really, a pretty nice prison, how it was set up. When you come out of receiving and discharge, you're right on the softball field. You're in the outfield. And like, they're playing softball and everything. And I'm like, okay, I can, I can make this work, I guess. You know, not much of a choice at this point. So I get to get to the uh, cell, and my first cell in prison, he was a pagan, a one-percenter motorcyclist out of Virginia. And he was in there for, um, they had a Hellraiser ball in New York, and, you know, they, they totally got into it. A couple of people got shot, some people got killed. That's what he was in there for, but he's an awesome guy. You know, I, I kind of judged the book by the cover at first. Like, oh, fuck, here I go. I'm in here with a biker, you know, first one. And <laughs> he's course. real, like, stern, like, my name's Will, you know? Yeah. I was like, how you doing? So we, we we hit it off pretty good. We had a few, you know, arguments over a couple-year period, but everything went pretty I feel like good. you're going to have that, though, no matter it, what. It's it's just par for course. You know, if you live with somebody every day, and you're going to go through institutional lockdowns where you're locked down for, you know, 24 hours a day in a cell with them, maybe for two weeks, a month at a time. Wow. You don't come out. They put a sack for food through your door like you're an animal, you know, and you're stuck in there. That's so fucked. One shower every three days. Like, yeah, it's it's bad. You see, like, a lot of ass whoopings and stuff like that? That's usually what will create the institutional lockdowns, like stabbings, especially if it's, like, interracial. And uh, what can happen there, you know, of course, like, 
say you're my buddy and some you know, a different race attacks you of course maybe all of us will get together and just go fuck their whole clique up mm-hmm. and then their clique you know it's just going to be back and forth so they'll usually try to 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 get the situation under control they'll lock us two up and they they got a what they call sis it's like investigation it's like the fbi inside so they try to figure out what the problem is and somebody's always got the keys to the car at a at a yard you'll have a, a spokesman for like the white people the black mexicans and they'll try to figure out what's going on with them and if it can be you know reconciled or you need to be shipped to another prison how do you avoid or is it possible to always avoid that situation while you're in prison like how do you avoid getting stabbed right i mean the best thing to do the best thing way to carry yourself is just if you tell somebody you're going to do something do it yeah don't ever try to steal from anybody in prison uh if you owe them money pay of course but i mean i ran into situations like i mean there's certain you know you got disrespectful people in there like somebody goes to cut me in a, a laundry line one time and we end up in a fight about it or you have situations where me and my celly we're we're all drinking because of course you know there's moonshine in there that's a whole nother story but uh we were overall in a cell one night and my celly knocks this guy out so of course nobody wants anybody to go to the hole in there so i grabbed the guy put him up in his bed and pull the cover over him not thinking much about it like they can resolve it in the morning and uh, so the next morning in the feds every institution has manual keys they're not buttons they don't push buttons they come lock them one officer does every morning so i heard the uh i heard the doors unlocking but i really wasn't thinking nothing i'm kind of asleep and as soon as our door got unlocked it was maybe 30 seconds later somebody come through it and it was the guy my celly had knocked out so i don't know for sure who he was going to attack but he had a lock and a belt on you know together yeah and when he went to hit, I don't know who it was because my back was kind of turned to the door, but it hit the top bunk. It didn't hit either one of us. So immediately, like, I fly up, and he tries to shoot and hit out the door, you know. So I, I snatch him up, pull him back in the cell, and by that time, my celly's up, too. So we just start working him over. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really was an eye-opener, the whole situation, because, like, in 40 seconds, that's what the camera footage was from the time because the officer heard stuff going on. It was 40 seconds, and we about killed the guy, you know, and it was all no weapons, anything, just stomping him out. Well, yeah, of course, but he's trying to fucking kill yeah, you. Yeah, and we didn't end up in a bunch of trouble about it. And what, what happened was we all got locked up. There was four people in the cell. Only two of us were involved in it, and they locked us all up. And there's, like, you know, the guy's in ICU for, like, a week, and they're like, he might die, you know, and like, fuck. Here we go. I'm already doing 20 years, but right. I was legitimately trying to defend myself. And so he ended up ma- coming around, making it. And while they're doing their investigation, they pull the videotapes on it, and they see that when he comes across the tier, he's got a lock and a belt. So they end up letting us out and shipping him. But it, it was a real big eye opener because I was like, man, I got to be careful what situations I get myself in. That could be me. Or I could have killed somebody, and now I've got 10 or 12 more years added on my sentence. Yeah, you're fucked. Yeah. What about, uh, you said, uh, you know, in the yard, you know, the people that are kind of the front men, if you will, for each clique or yeah. gang or whatever you want to call it, kind of get together and they can even decide if some if something can't be resolved, if that person needs to be shipped to another prison. How do they dictate that so it actually happens? Uh, well, how it usually happens in an institution, like let's let, let's just say, for example, me and Mark get in a fight. Right. 
Okay, we're two different races. So automatically they're going to lock us up and split us up. Then SIS is going to go to you. You got the keys to the car. All right, and he's going to say, look, what happened? Some people are going to say, I don't know. Some people are going to say, hey, you never tell the story of what happened. They're good to come out. You can let them both out. There's not going to be no more problems. Or like, hey, it's better off if you get them both out of there. Because you compromise the whole institution if, if, me, if me and Mark get So out, they'll take the advice of the people with the keys to They the have to because we run the prison. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. You I run the prison. Yeah, you guys run the prison. They have control, but, I mean, what goes on inside that prison is up to him. I truly think if you had a true revolt in a prison, it could just. I mean, big- certain levels it could. Like Beaumont, Texas, when they sent me there, it's a level five. And like, I don't think you could get out of that. Like, they got helicopter guide wires where they can't get down with a helicopter. You got nine live gun towers. Like, I seen, I, when I was there, I seen a guy, they were in a fist fight, no weapons. And the gun tower, they, they sounded the alarm. They sound alarm. You know, everybody get on the ground, and they'll fire, like, one warning shot in the air. And they fired that warning shot, and they didn't stop fighting it, and they shot the guy. No shit. Shot him. No yeah. shit. So in Colorado, they had a riot over there, and, like, the gun tower, they shot two people and killed them. Sometimes that's what it takes to get a situation under control. I mean, if that's what it takes, yeah, that's what it takes, right? Yeah. And I think also, you, I think in some instances, too, the prisons do have to reestablish that authority after a certain amount of time, but disagree with the whole system in general because, uh, listen, I don't think you should be rewarding these people. Like, what I think you did was fucking stupid. Right. But um, I don't think you should, you know, be given, like, some reward or treated like some baby or some shit like that. I think that you should be rehabilitated and made to be useful to other people um, in society, which I think you've done a great job, obviously, with what you've done, reinserting yourself into society and taking life and uh, and, and, and making it happen for yourself, not waiting for it to come to you. Yeah, and, if the, you know, all that, all that stems from just being prepared, not necessarily prepared on one task, but just having the mentality to know that, hey, I don't want to come back here, so... Whatever I have to do to to avoid this, that's what I'm going to do at all costs. Yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by one of the absolute best real estate agents in the Cleveland market, Tom Sugar with Howard Hanna Real Estate. Tom's here to help you understand the home buying and selling process. Um, He's here to ensure that you're also always going to get the best price, whether you're buying a home or whether you're selling a home, and his customer service skills are top notch. Give Tom a call at 216-406-2841. That's 216-406-2841. You can call or text him or visit his website, shugsells.com, S-H-U-G-S-E-L-L-S.com. Visit Tom Sugar, everybody. He is the best. You're in Beaumont. Where did you go after there? And how long, actually, how long did you spend in Beaumont? Beaumont, I was there from 2009 to 2013. And where was your first stint done? In uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, in Memphis. Um, so after you get out of Beaumont, where, where do you head? Okay, so went, I actually went back to Memphis. Um, it was like four years later. Uh, security level come back down from that incident like they reclassify you every six months so it took like four years to kind of get that off my jacket went back to medium security back to the prison that's like my home prison because it's the first one i was there the longest end up doing approximately about 10 years on that yard wow wow 10 years 10 years locked up 
10 years. That's crazy, dude. That's crazy. And, and it, I think what's so notable about it is even when I've met you and I've gotten the opportunity to know you over the last like couple of days, you don't come off. You never meet you and be like, you know, like he's been, he, you know, he spent 16 years almost in jail. You know, you'd be like, you know, here's this like sweet, innocent little Southern boy, but he's fucking not. When you get to a prison, do you, um, did you, have you made a lot of friends throughout your years in prison? You said you maybe wanted to shout out a couple of them, so I want to give you an opportunity to make sure you, you were uh, able do to do it that. At the end, but uh, once, once you've been in the system for like several years, you know, once you get that decade ring, it's like kind of like Super Bowl ring. Really? Uh, yeah. That's not De- <laughs> definitely comparable. <laughs> <laughs> definitely comparable. I totally see that. No, but once you, once you've been down a while. I so thought I saw you on ESPN one time. Yeah. They did call me the Great Wide Hope, you know. Oh wow! Jumper, baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's fucking hilarious, actually. I'm the Great Wide Hope. The Hope. Oh, I, oh yeah. That's you, not me. All right. Yeah, dang, dude. I know. <laughs> Jesus. I'm just messing with. Dang. <laughs> Cut that out. No, once you've been in the institution or, or the system in general for a while, you know, people come to this institution, get transferred, you get transferred, you end up meeting back up with them. And, you know, your character and your reputation, they're going to know it pretty much before you get there. Like, they know you're not a rat. They know you're... All right, yeah, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> so they know if you're a piece of shit coming in there or okay, not. Okay, so when you first get in the system, you have what they call a PSI, which is your pre-sentence report. So what draws red flags on people when they don't have a PSI, something's wrong. When they say, oh, I can't get my PSI, or uh, I tried to get it mailed in, that means there's something wrong in it. Or it can be like this, they may have a PSI mailed in, and it'll be like page 26, 27, 35. You're like, hold up, where's the other pages? Mm -hmm. And in in that instance, like in a lower security facility, you'll just kind of shun and stay away from the person you don't deal with them. In a higher security facility, you cannot walk the yard without the paperwork. The end. You got 30 days to get your paperwork there. You're going to get smashed off the yard. Really? Yeah. That's got to be, is it there's a prevention of the paperwork, or is it majority of the time people just don't want other people to know why they're there? No, they've done done something. Like, why would you want somebody to not know, you know, that you're clean? Absolutely, yeah. That you're not a child molester. So if there's problems with the paperwork, there's problems with the people. How does that go around the yard, the child molester stuff? I've watched some videos on YouTube in the past, but, like, what's your experience with that? Uh, like in a in a level four and five, you're just gonna get rid of them. You know, you go up, smash them out, stomp them out, and they'll get rid of them. That's just kind of the environment. I think they should. It's I not think- it's not a choice. Like, but like in a level four or five, it kind of works like this. Um, Beaumont was so like not segregated racially, but it was segregated from like unit one, unit two, unit three. They had three yards. It, they were all separated. They had corridors. Like, so if stuff popped off, they could lock gates and kind of try to control it where it's not 500 people into it maybe it's only 80 or 100 damn though that's still a lot so like how it was built the the prison's kind of built like an octagon three yards so they're kind of split up like this and there's a corridor all the way around it like when you want to walk to like laundry commissary uh, medical there's like corridors you're locked in and that's like the most dangerous part like when things pop off Usually how it would be in Beaumont, they'll like start a fight, Just it's a fake, it's a facade. They'll start a fight over in Unit 1, and then all the, the correctional officers will run there. And then, then it'll get, you know, they'll handle their business where it really needs to happen. So it kind of deflects them, gives them more time before you get what they call the goon squad, because they'll come out there with shields, like beanbag guns. Yeah. Yes, it's a nightmare. 
the the goon squad that's got to be a little bit of a scary situation right when you first see them come out unless unless they're not coming for you i guess it's probably not scary right well what's bad about them like they're not necessarily scary but like if you're in a prison right the first thing they want you to do is like lay down on the ground and they're like shooting beanbag guns and like if you don't get down they'll just fire on you but then at the same time you got you know if it's black against white or white against mexican black against mexican you know who the fuck wants to lay down on the ground when you got somebody trying to stab you of course so you just you know you just got to take it with a grain of salt so you have a lot of probably crazy prison stories and stuff you've been to different prisons you've been through the feds you've been put through the ringer there and i'm sure from a mental standpoint towards the end of that sentence you have to be broken down but still excited maybe to get back out there like what were you feeling when you're you know you're coming up on that release date I, I don't know. It's just, I guess it's probably different for everybody. But for me, it was like, you know, I, I've got this time. I've wasted a bunch of life. I want to get back out and just get reestablished with my family and, and start a business. That was my main goals. So moving forward, when I did get out, you know, uh, after your actual institutional lockup, you'll go through a halfway house, which is 180 days. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a nightmare. It was Warren County Jail. So it was just like being in the county jail. And um, once you get off that, you're on supervised release. It's a term of confinement. They say post-incarceration. It's just like essentially probation. So from my, how it happened with my experience, I go in, meet her. She had the same last name as me as well. It's kind of coincidental. But I go in there and she says, well, I see you have drug convictions, so you're gonna have to, you're gonna sign up for drug counseling. And I'm like, drug counseling? What do you mean, drug counseling? I've been I've been locked up for 15 years, eight months. I've never had a dirty urine analysis. Like I'm not taking no drug counseling. All right, you can tell you're not a drug person by the fact that you just called it a urine analysis. Yeah, you like that? Ua. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck, dude. But anyway, long story short. What are you when, a fucking cop? When, when I go, <laughs> when I go in her office, you know, and and I told her that, and she kind of. She was kind of like thrown back by me telling her I'm not going to drug counseling. And she's like, well, you have to go. You know, that's a that can be, you know, a reason to terminate your supervised release and send you back to prison. And I said, look, I just want to be real clear here. Uh, I'm not trying to cause any problems whatsoever. If I give you a reason where I need to go to drug counseling, I'll do so. But um, you have you have a job to do here and I'm not I'm not going to drug counseling. Mm-hmm. And she just sat there for a moment, and she's, she didn't say a whole lot, and she just kind of ended our, our meeting. So I was like, I don't really know how that went. And I just immediately started, you know, going to work, taking care of things. I'd get up 4 o'clock in the morning every day. I'd work till dark, and I did that for like three years. And, uh, like, it kind of compromised all my relationships and family, and just everything, because I'm never there. And, like, people don't see the fruits of your labor initially. They're like, why does he work that much? And then, you know, looking forward, six years post-prison, uh, you know, I've got, like, way more than anybody else has got. i got whatever toy I want. I've got a fleet of trucks. But, you know, it, I, I give people it's kind of a remedial example. But when you clean a house, you know, <laughs> you're there cleaning it and cleaning it. It don't seem like you're ever getting nowhere until you get to the very end. You're like, oh, it looks great. And that's kind of how it is when you're doing things in life. You're like, man, this is a bitch. Why am I working s- this much? I'm not really seeing anything because I'm spending all my money, putting it back in the company, putting it back in the company. And then all all at once, like year four, five, six, it just like 
Mark got to see it personally. You know, I'm making trips down there buying equipment. You know, now I got the money to buy three pieces, and now I can sell two and get mine free. Now I have I no overhead in the business. You love being a hillbilly. I think it's great. You like that? Yeah. You I like my voice, but. Yeah. I mean, really, my next question for you, man, is, like, you come out of prison. You said that you know a little bit about, you know, doing some stuff with trees. And, um, I mean, for everybody that really doesn't know, the greatest part about Jay's story is his success, being able to turn a negative into a positive and then um you know be able to provide jobs for other people do the right thing create opportunities for others and um, i think that is like the biggest part of this podcast i do want to focus on is is the good you've decided to do with your life because like even for me i've done some shitty things in my life and i try to do good here right and it's nothing to the extent of i didn't spend 16 years in you know the feds for making a fucked up mistake but um uh, if you just would kind of dive into that a little bit of, of how that started and then, you know, how you got to that point for maybe somebody out there that could possibly be in the same situation that you were once in. All right. So initially, I, I don't think I've really told you too much about this. So I, I, that's all I did for like 16 years is workout. That was just like my ever living moment. It kept me really sane and get up I'd run three miles you know after I got in good shape like my goal was always to keep it under 18 18 and a half minutes so my I had I had a business partner that I dealt with as far as funding some stuff and we didn't talk for about 10 years they tried to get me to cooperate on him I didn't do it uh, you know we had a statute of limitations for about 10 years so after 10 years he contacted my sister and he's like hey I want to know where your brother's at and my sister gave him all my information, and he contacted me. And he's like, hey, where are you at? I want to come visit you. You know, I know you probably think I don't appreciate you not telling, but, I, you know, the reason that I'm with my family is because you didn't roll over on me. Right. So, and we grew up, too. He's another childhood friend, and he's like, you know, I got to raise my kids. He cut This is a visit, and he's like, I just want you to know the reason I was able to raise my kids is because you were solid, man. You didn't tell on me. You didn't implicate me in this stuff and draw me into this conspiracy. And I just told him, I was like, look, you know, it that was my job to do that. I entered into this agreement to, you know, if anything happened, I wasn't going to collapse on somebody and cause that other pain to somebody else. And he's, he's, he was doing pretty good financially, and he said, look, um, I don't want you to just come work for me. And he, he owns a tree company, too. He said, I don't want you to just come work for me. I want you to tell me what you want to do. He said, I'm where I'm at in life because I didn't have to go to prison like you. You took the lick for both of us. And um, so th at the time, like I had been studying Tough Mudder, Spartan Race, all these obstacle course races. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if anybody knows, but these things are generating $100 million in an event on big events. Wow. So I was like, wow, th maybe this is the lick. <laughs> So we'll, I'll actually show you some videos. Maybe we'll post one on here. But you were gonna sell meth to everybody at the events? No, no absolutely not. <laughs> just kidding. That, that was the old Jay. I'm John now. So he, he said, well, "What do you want to do?" So I showed him. I had I had drawn up a little bit of a business plan, and I was like, "Look at these events, man. These things are killing it. Like especially the Tough Mudder and Spartan Race. They were just like outrageous money." So I said, look, he grew up on a, on a lime quarry. It was like a homestead that he had 15 sisters and brothers. And I was like, man, if we got a lime quarry, I don't know if y'all are familiar with what a lime quarry is, 
but it's where they mine limestone. I don't see none of it out here, but they mine limestone. And eventually they hit vessels of water underground. They just flood them with this just blue, beautiful water. Okay. And it's like a stone pool, you know? So these things are, some of them are 100, 200 foot deep, aqua blue water. And I was, so we started drawing up these. Uh, actually, that I told him, hey, send, I need you to send me 2500 bucks to get a cell phone so we can get this going. Right. A so, cell phone? Yeah, I had a cell phone in prison. What kind of fucking cell phone were you buying for $2,500? <laughs> well, they're actually like $100. I figured it out once I got out. So they, they were really, but it, you know, it's the problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're in prison at this point. Yeah, we all right, all right. To sorry, have sorry. Cell phones. Funny story. I got so many funny stories about being on the phone because you had to smuggle this thing around. And, you know, you're always walking by correctional officers and things like that. And, you know, you make a pouch on your pants, you know, because they, they don't want to grab your junk for real. They'll pat you down, but they ain't trying to rub all up on you. right? Yeah. So you make a little pouch right here to put your phone in and you'll go to like the phone stall and you'll be texting or talking, whatever. Have somebody watch out for you. So we get we get this going and and so he takes the business plan in front of the banker and they loan him the money. So the property was like $585,000 and then what he put into it was about another 250. So we get it going. Like I'm not out yet at this point, but um I'll show you the pictures we actually photoshopped them, me in prison and him with our logo. Oh and no shit. All this was done from prison. And so we get it going, it's opened up in a small county in kentucky like a real small town but it's only like 60 miles from fort campbell army base so you have all the soldiers there that's going to be our, our our really potential clientele so my friend um can't say nothing bad about the whole ordeal but uh, a few things got shortcut of what it should have been and he likes to party kind of like roger over here we're in a small town and and they have the wreck fest you know you know who ryan upchurch is do you know who he is no uh anyways he he had a big song just come out called uh campfire cologne so they come down there and like debuted it at the climb we got floating dock zip lines across the water where like you zip line let go go off into the water well in the meantime when they had this wreck fest it's like 2,000 rednecks descend on the place and just chaos like some duis other things and they got the city against them so that kind of failed that planet once, once they got the actual city against them, it was like it wasn't going to happen. Right. Because then they started nitpicking about just everything. So that, so that one kind of failed, and, you know, it, it kind of hurt him financially somewhat. We kind of split ways on our partnership. We don't hate each other or anything, but it's better off if I do business and he does business. And I just worked really hard, you know, put the time in, and every every penny that i would make i would just put it back in the business i would buy another skid steer another bucket truck you know another dump trailer another dump truck and in the meantime you know i'm setting up all these accounts with the auctions so when i go buy equipment like i would buy two bucket trucks sell one keep one get I was yeah one i get it okay price. okay so it helped me kind of catapult my business because i'm not really having to finance a bunch of equipment and you know so the cash flow is coming in off the jobs and just building it and one thing leads to the next, and then I just really I submerged myself in the storm game. You know, like it's huge, multi-billion-dollar business. Everything's insurance work, or you're doing work for the DOT and right-of-ways, and there's a lot of money in it. And that's what you're doing now. We have crews down there now as we're as we're sitting here. And your business is Highland Tree Service LLC. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. But I, I think what's most notable about all of this is how you just were able to catapult yourself into 
into that situation, what would you say the biggest challenge was that you ended up facing reintegrating yourself into society from getting out of prison? As far as business or personal? Uh, let's say, let's ask both. As far as business, the hardest part getting started was just starting with zero capital. Right. Because when you don't have no capital, you can't buy the real nice equipment. Like now we have nice equipment, makes everybody's job easy and efficient. But when you start out, you, you know, you're starting out with substandard equipment. So you're having problems, which even with new equipment, you have problems all the time. Oh, you said this. You know, that, that was the biggest obstacle in business, just starting from zero. But, you know, w once the momentum gets going and you take the money and you invest it right, it just becomes easier and easier and easier. But, like, I, you know, I don't feel that successful. I've done okay, but I'm not to where I want to be. I get it. Yeah, we're, we're trying to climb that mountain. Right, I understand. I understand. Yeah, I think that's why. Yeah, I, I love. I love your attitude. I love your can-do attitude over the last couple of days. Cause like, even though you like bust my balls about smoking and shit, I know it's cause you want me to be better. So I appreciate that kind of stuff out of you. I really do. Um, you're just that kind of person that you know what I mean. You really do want to see people around you succeed, which I think, um, is really cool. I I meant to ask you this before, but like, what happens like? when someone crosses john sanders well i mean in prison it's not near as much repercussions you know it's a trip to seg for you know 30 60 100 days whatever but like in there you can't let people cross over on you it's not an option like when i was in memphis you know i'm in a all predominantly all black prison so i ran poker tables and tickets all the gambling rackets because mm -hmm. you know i had the money behind it to get you know to support it but that that was a passion of mine anyways. I'm I'm an avid poker player. I love playing poker. So like there was no better pastime for me than working out, you know, in the morning. I'd play handball in the afternoon, play poker all night and you know, repeat every day. And I kinda got a kick out of it too, because like on a prison poker game, the rake, which the rake means how much you cut out of each pot, it, it's unlit it's at ten percent straight across the board. So like in a casino you're raking 5% and they'll cap it at $5, whether it's a 50000 or a million-dollar pot, it doesn't matter. In prison, you're, you're raking 10%, so if it's a $500 pot, you're cutting 50. So if you do the mathematics behind it, in eight hours, if you sit down, you'll have half of the buy-in. So if there's $3,000 worth of buy-in on your table, you'll cut $1,500 of the money if you're running 35 hands an hour. So then then leaves the question, what happens with you under on um so you're a businessman no one's really gonna fuck with you in prison but if they do and you go fuck them up whatever no big deal life goes on you can't get your hands dirty if you outside of prison would you say you've been able to control your anger pretty well or has that been like a trouble thing because like i feel like once you get integrated into those you have to respect me you're gonna respect me this is the way it is and then you get outside those walls and it's, it's not necessarily it's, it's like that yeah, that's why I was curious about that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to adjust to that, and it's also hard to adjust to, like, sensitizing yourself to emotion. Um, I, I think I shared this with you and Mark, but, like, um, I, I have a prison photo album. You know, I just flip through and look through as I've been out, just kind of as a reminder, like, hey, you need to make sure you make conscious decisions. But you look at those pictures, and on, on week one, Week one of prison, probably the first prison photo I ever took. You know, I, I'm, I'm like, when my family comes to see me, you know, this will be the first contact visit I've had in, you know, three years. And, like, I'm real close and hugging them. And as the years go by, just by no physical contact with people, 
I almost look like a prop in the picture away from it's him, very you know? odd for you at that point yeah, and then you know like i didn't like things when i first got out like holding hands like i don't want my hands held yeah like, it's nothing against you but you know it's just I, I feel uncomfortable and you know so i try to get better at those things and just emotional things like some people say well you don't have emotion <laughs> and you know it's just you go so many years you miss every christmas every thanksgiving every holiday you know, those things, you just become a little more numb and a little more numb. Of course. So, you know, I ask myself that question, like, does it take 16 years to get back to where you were? Right. Who knows? Or, I mean, or never you, or maybe you never will. It may not be. You know, and it's, I don't mean that in, like, a bad way, right? But I, th- I think, like, the feeling. person that you are and the person that you built yourself to be, and maybe that'll slowly but surely come back, Um but I guess, do you want it to come back? I mean, I, I'm pretty happy who I am. Um, I think it's hard on other people, you know, when they deal with you, you know, as far as family, relationships, as right. far as an uh, intimate relationship, um, whether it be platonic or romantic. It, you know, the, the, it's just, it's a different vibe, you know, because when you went through certain things in life, it, it just makes scars on you. It don't make you ugly, but it makes a difference. I agree. I think that there's a lot of people that have been through a lot of things, whether, I mean, 16 years in prison, obviously significant. There's going to be mental, uh, we could call them repercussions, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know if that's maybe the best word, but um, but I think even for other people that have become numb because of just other life experiences, maybe they weren't in prison. I know for me, a lot of things have been numb as well. So, like, I appreciate you sharing that with us, though, because uh, I, I, do, I definitely think a lot of people do struggle with it. Right. Right. What else do you really want to touch on? Like, what do you want everybody to know about John Sanders? What what is what is John Sanders message to this world, to these people that maybe need a little bit of help uh, to somebody that needs some guidance? Um, What do you what do you want everybody? What do you want them to know? The the biggest thing in life, I think, that that really sets people back. Okay, it it, a, a person to actually told me this in prison. They said, you never fail because you set the bar too high in life and don't reach it. You fail because you set it too low and, and, and you make it. So that's one thing, like, you know, if you want to do something, you got to dream big. And, it, you know, uh, I, uh, a thought is just a thought. And then you need actions and then you need goals. You know, those things just are one step after the next to get somewhere. Like, like everybody, you know, especially where I'm from, they're like, how did he do what he did? Like anybody can do that. Like anybody can realistically do that. If you can believe, if you if you honestly can believe it, and you can vision it in your mind, it can happen. Right. You just have to have passion, determination. You have to be reliable. That's the biggest fail point I think in people today. They're just not reliable. Right. Consistency wins every every single race in the world. If you're consistent with something each and every day. You just do it day in, day out, day in, day out. You'll get to where you want to be. One of my, one of a good friend of mine. He's he's gonna write a book called "I Become a Businessman from Being a Drug Dealer." Okay, okay. <clears throat> this is a good point to hit on. Okay, so the number one thing. This is a noted thing. You can read a million entrepreneur books, and it's gonna pretty much outline the same thing. The biggest thing that stunts people from success is the fear of failure. Like, and you'll see it. Like. Me and my sister were raised in the same home with same parents, same environment. And she, like her, if she has a chance to make 500000 or fifty safely, she's going to take the fifty. I'm shooting for the 500 Right. Because I've started everything in life with zero. 
Like, if I started from zero and did it, I can. Start. You're not afraid of it. Yeah. No, it's no, fun. You're not afraid of it. It's fun and challenging. Yeah. And it, it's, <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves, dude. I don't know about fun, but <laughs> <laughs> I just I I started at zero not that long ago, but yeah. That's funny. That's that's the biggest thing. Fucking fun. I think that's why why people. uh, (laughs) I'm gonna touch on what Mark said. I think the biggest point of what like why some people like my friends that are a lot of my employees. They I take them out to like Sarasota, Florida, Fort Myers, West Palm Beach, all my homeboys' house, and they're like, God damn, they got a fucking mansion. You was locked up with him. It's like yeah, he just got out five or six years ago, and they're like, How the fuck does he do it? But we had business principles. When we're doing things illegal, you do good business. Right. And the thing, when you, when you do things illegal... What a fucking genius idea, right? It, it, do good business when it's illegal. Yeah, it's well, even legal business, though, when you when you practice good principles and you do good work, it, the work will just come to you, you know? And the, But the biggest thing that just stops the average person from going out and doing this is that fear of failure. Like, you just got to say, fuck it, I'm going to try it. When I started this business, I didn't touch on this point. I had been helping another one of my friends just to get a little money. I had $1,087, okay? So I went to the Kubota dealership. I sealed a deal on a truck. I sealed a deal on a skid steer, and I told him, look, just give me 30 days. I'll come back, and I'll take care of whatever the bill is. And he said, you know what? This guy's got millions of dollars. He said, I trust you. You're gonna. I think you're going to do well. And, like, today, I don't care if I lived in uh, Cuba, I would go to him to buy a skid steer. Yeah. Because he took that chance on me. Yeah, you know? he, you, he hooked you up. And that's, you just, you, you have to do it. But there's there's an innate character with criminals. Like, apparently, we're not really uh, scared to take a risk. Because every day you do something illegal, you're risking your freedom, sacrificing the, your loved ones, being around them, you know. Every, you're taking the ultimate risk. So when you get out here and you start playing with business, it's like, okay, I lost. Yeah, this isn't even playing ball at that point. I lost 50 grand. We'll take that other shot and make 100 here. Yeah. You know, you just can't take too many of them at once. I understand. I really appreciate you sharing that with everybody and opening up. I really like that. I always finish my podcast with this question, and uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy would you consider yourself to be? And if it's not a 10, what do you think you'd do to uh, get yourself to a 10 or closer to a 10? Uh, I would say probably like a 6.7. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's, it's a number I like. So, But um, I'm going to say a 6.7 right now. Yeah. And, and to get to where I want to be, um, I can't really divulge into that because you touched on the subject a little bit. Yeah, but uh, we're, it, we're, uh, I don't drink. It. I'm drug-free Jay. All right. <laughs> but um, I, I think we got something in the works that's, you. that'll really get me up there and I'll feel like I'm successful. I like that. Do you feel successful now or do you feel like you just have a lot more room to improve? Well, everyone around me tells me, like, you're never satisfied. Uh, nothing's enough. Like, not just on money terms, but, like, I like a nicer truck, a nicer car, a bigger boat. That, But I don't see that as, like, not being happy. Because, you know, like, I, I had a Baja boat. I, I wanted to buy a bigger one, I, you know, trucks, cars. But the thing about that is, is I like to see progression. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm stagnant. You kind of love the journey in a way. Yeah, I mean, if you're not progressing, what are you? Yeah, I know. You're I regressing. Agree. Yeah, you're degressing. I agree. Okay, because everything, whether it's money or anything else, it inflates. You're, you're losing if you're not gaining. Yep. 
So that has to be your momentum to get. I mean, who doesn't want something bigger and better and nicer, you know, or a bigger piece of property? These are things you should want. Yeah. Yeah, you got to I, I I've found it imperative in my life to have a goal and to have multiple goals, like even for myself to consistently stay busy. And, and that's a good thing to touch on. Like goals are great. Yeah. But I think some people give a big blanket goal, and I, I tell this kind of it's a country analogy. But if you if you have a to, or I told you this the other day, if you have a barn out here, yeah. I say Roger, shoot the barn, and you're like, Jay, Jay, I did great, I hit the barn, I'm a good shot. But we're talking about the barn's a hundred by hundred, Roger. Right. You're not really a fucking good shot. Yeah. But if you put a target on there, and these are like goals in life. Yeah. You put a target on there and you shoot and you miss by five foot. What do you do? I don't know. Keep fucking trying. No, you ha- you have to make adjustments. Well, yeah, of course. You you adjust to it and get closer. And the and and dealing with goals are just like that. Like if you, you can't really just micro in on exactly what you want, but get you get you a goal this size. Yeah. And just start chiseling it away, chiseling it away, and look at it. And it, if you if you view it every week and and you see okay, I haven't gotten any closer to where I want to be than I was last week. You have to ask yourself, what do I need to do to get closer? So rather it be like a bad habit you have, replace it with a good habit. If that's if this phone's consuming too much of your time, eliminate an app. You know Th- these mm-hmm. things are real. Like I've done that myself. Like get on TikTok. You know I don't have like an Instagram or nothing. I told you that because right. I get on it and I start scrolling. I'm there for a fucking hour. But you know you, you really you have to make them goals and you have to micro them down. Where okay I'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and before you know it you're there. You're like. Like somebody the other day, uh, we were down here on the storm in Georgia, and I, we we did some work together on the storm. His name's Charles Rogers. He he owns Clean Cut Tree Service, real good guy. But when he got home, you know what he did? He shot a picture of my lot, and you know you really don't realize that's so big, but it's just trucks, you know, just lined up, and I'm not even home, you know, and those trucks are running. Yeah. And then I I've got these crews in Georgia running, and they're running while we're having this podcast. Yeah. But you don't, you don't, you know, and it was kind of, that was a sense of accomplishment. You know, this is another guy that's been in the, he's been there 20 years. I've been there six. You know, I, ha- I do have the biggest tree service in my city, you know. And Good so, for you. Some people hate on it and some people love it. They're like, I like to well, see Well, whatever. It. Who gives a shit? And who gives a fuck? Yeah. Honestly, they're not paying the bills. Yeah, who gives a shit? Yeah. You shouldn't care. Yeah. You should be proud of yourself. How do you like the peanut gallery tonight? They're fucking brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I had brutal. fun having the podcast, but I, I guess the biggest thing is just never give up on a dream. Like, I'm sitting in L.A. for a reason. We, we'll be easy on the reason it is. But, like, who who would have thought that getting out of prison six years ago, like, it started as, as an idea. And it's manifested in being here, creating a reality, and hopefully it'll just be mind-blowing. That's, that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah, I mean, for. now you're sitting in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Welcome to the show, baby. We're ju- everybody likes mind blowing. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I get it. You told me a year ago I'd be doing this. I tell you, you're fucking crazy. Yeah, and so it just I get happened. It. Yeah. You well, know? thank you for coming on. Thank you for being here, and we will do a part two with a lot more information. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. See you next time. All right, have a good day.